so my name is Richard Wingate. I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I'm also responsible for uh, anatomy teaching at King's College London. And um, I've also spent rather a lot of time working with uh, artists and scientists over the last 10 years at that interface between the two. And I guess they've just invited me along here today uh, because uh, of that experience. And uh, what I want to talk about today is some reflections really on what science is and why I think that um, there may be a basic antipathy uh, between science and the art in the way that we see the world, but it's also to, to offer a more optimistic view that that antipathy is a constructive antipathy, something we should celebrate and explore and makes the whole interaction between science and, and art worthwhile. So I'm going to talk about systems of seeing, how I feel scientists see and why that's a uh, a, un a unique or a special thing about science, our systems of seeing, and how that generates uh, cultures of difference. Um, and in talking about science, I got quite used to trying to give definitions um, through this small series of diagrams, which really, um, I think they come from a book by McComas, um, outline one perspective on what science is and what it is to interpret scientific information. So this is a representation of dinosaur footprints in a dried riverbed. And what we do is we ask audience and students to um, tell us what's happening. So I can ask you what's happening there. What do you think is going on? <laughs> Are they both dinosaurs? Both dinosaurs. No. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It happened a long time ago. Big dinosaur, chasing this dinosaur. Well, yeah, and that's a common... And in fact, if you look a bit more carefully, you can see that the, the space between these footprints increases, and it might indicate that the, the big dinosaur speeding up at this point. So if I show you the next picture, that might confirm your initial hypothesis that something's going on there. And usually there's two ways of seeing it at this point, big dinosaur and little dinosaur. And the more polite one is that there, there's some sort of fight going on there, and maybe there's uh, some kind of, uh, uh, that's predator and prey. That's interesting. Could it not be a female and a male? Yeah, it could be a female and a male. Or a watering hole. It could be a watering hole, but then the third s slide it perhaps um, will it confirm or maybe uh, offer another hypothesis to explain it, that one there. So what do you think's happened? <laughs> <laughs> so the big dinosaur may have eaten a little dinosaur, or it could be a mother picking up its child, or a father picking up its child and carrying it off. Um, but this illustrates one aspect of science, I'd say, one important aspect of the science is, is that it's a way of interpreting evidence to produce hypotheses that can be tested, and that's a fairly standard view of what, what science is, is all about. And um, I'm also going to tell you a little bit of a story as well to illustrate maybe why this model of uh, science's interpretation is both powerful and may actually also not be the complete picture. So this is the story. It's the story of the discovery of the brain cell, which I know some of you uh, know quite well. And it's the story of basically two pictures of the brain. Uh, these are drawings of uh, collections of brain cells that were made in the late part of the 19th century uh, by two scientists, um, different scientists. On the left, you've got drawings by Camilla Golgi. On the right, you've got drawing by Ramoni Cajal. And Golgi and Cajal shared the Nobel Prize in 1906 for discovery of the brain cell. But whereas Cajal is probably rightly celebrated as the founder of modern neuroscience, 
Golgi has become a bit of a byword for obstinacy and folly in science. Someone who stuck to a theory which was uh, obviously completely wrong, uh, and yet, despite the evidence that should have been in front of his eyes, stuck with this up until his, his demise, and actually inspired a whole school of students after him to follow uh, a philosophy that was seen to be wrong. Just to explain what they were doing, they were both working with this kind of evidence, this is fragmentary labelling of brain cells, um, uh, which um, had been achieved by a process that Golgi himself invented. It's the Golgi stain, and it gives you this pattern of little fragments of black uh, deposits within a slice of a uh, specially prepared brain, and using this kind of fragmentary information, Cajal, Cajal and Golgi built up these elaborate pictures of the internal structure of the brain, um, which you've just seen in these pictures here. Now, these pictures are very different, and the difference in the trajectory of their careers and their reputations lies within this picture, just the same as the dinosaur tracks. And if you're really, really good, you'll know what that is. Perhaps beforehand you'll be able to spot it, but I don't think you'll be able to do that. Same part of the brain. I think it's a tough one, so I'm just going to amplify two parts of it. The devil is in the detail in this part of the picture here. Golgi's magnified view of this area shows those little tendrils fusing together. There are no uh, discontinuities between these lines. Cajal draws a lot of blind endings. Um, he saw, when he looked down the microscope, that each of these little processes, we call them, is actually discrete and blind ending. They don't connect with neighboring processes. What that means is their view of what they were seeing was very different. Golgi saw a continuous net of interconnected structures, a reticulum. He didn't see individual brain cells, whereas Cajal recognized that there were gaps between neighboring trees here, and so that these were individual cells. Very elaborate, very complicated, not like other cells that you might have seen, but really they're all individuals. That's the foundation of the neuron doctrine and modern neuroscience, and this, the reticulum theory, became a bit of a laughing uh, stop. Well, he became a laughing stop for the rest of his career. He had a furious argument at the Nobel Prize uh, uh, Awards and spent the first half hour slagging uh, off Cajal. It was, it was, yeah, anyway, he did, he, he, his reputation was in tatters from that point onwards, I think. So this could be a story about differences in interpretation. Um, Cajal and Golgi had different interpretations of the evidence in front of them, um, but I'm not sure that's actually the case. And so this gets back to perhaps everything they've been saying today. Just to remind you what they were doing, was looking at this, this evidence here, very fragmentary evidence that was in front of them in microscope slides. I don't think that Golgi was any less of a scientist than Cajal. I think his pictures are actually better. I think he's a better draftsman. I think he was better at using the microscope. And, who's a better craftsman, who invented this stone. I think the difference is that they actually saw different things when they looked down the microscope. And that difference in what they saw is what defined, not what they interpreted. I don't think Golgi and Cajal had different interpretations. They actually did see different things when they looked at the same material. And I think that this emphasize that science is not actually about interpretation. It's a very specific way of seeing things. And we can even be more specific about it 
is defined by this word which uh, Dr. brought up earlier on, artifact. Golgi saw Kahal's blind endings, his lack of contact as the artifact. Kahal saw Golgi's connections as an artifact. They both said that each other's work was artifactual. And so this word is absolutely key to understanding how we, the scientists, view the world and what makes us different, I think, from artists. And we can talk about that afterwards. So what is artifact? This is one of my own pictures. And you can probably just see this is a whole set of brain cells growing in a, a, across a hindbrain. In the background, there's a, there's a light scattering of dust. This is artifact to me. It's unreal. It's more than just insignificant. It's not real. And this, these are the terms we use to describe it. We say, this is not, that's not real. This is real. That's real and unreal are how we define what we see when we look at anything in a scientific or scientific hat on. And it's the real that gets translated into the result, the figure that I've produced here for this paper. This stuff is not just excluded by a matter of logical interpretation. Well, I don't think that's real. I don't think we'll exclude that. It's gone. I don't even look at it. I don't even see it. And it took me a while to go back to that picture. I mean, well... Actually, there is some fine-grained dust in there, and it's not, it's not significant, I don't think. It is, it's an artifact. I can't get that out of my head. It's, it's not real. It's not real. It's not, it's not important to me. So what about this? I, I started off saying this is a good illustration of how science works. Well, actually, it's a very poor illustration of how science works, because what's missing from this diagram of the riverbed is this stuff, which is the actual riverbed. Yeah. So this is not uh, science. This is the next stage on from science. This is the interpretation and it's secondary to seeing. The important thing was this, seeing this. And actually that act of seeing was actually quite difficult. So interpretation, anyone can do this. And that's not degrading it. I think it's really good that anyone can do it. And I think we, we did it at the beginning. Some of us had a go trying to interpret it. That's not real. Might be your phone. Or maybe I'll shout a bit. That's so trying. So, Interpretation, and that's secondary to seeing, which is the... Sorry, it's really going to annoy you. Can, if I shout a bit. So, interpretation is secondary to seeing, and seeing is the bit that scientists do differently. We see things differently, and artifact is the word that we can encapsulate that difference in seeing. So what is artifact? Artifact is the, is, a, is the impulsive need to disambiguate figures that we as scientists do on a daily day, day on a day-to-day -day basis. The need to define real versus unreal. And in doing this, I think what we're doing is applying models, pre-configured models which are in our heads. And where these models come from is also quite interesting. So what is a model? The best way to think about a model is to look at an ambiguous figure. Um, some of you here will see a woman walking through uh, past a tree. Does anyone see that? And some of you will see a face. Some of you will see both. <laughs> so that's an ambiguous figure. And the first, uh, what you see is, is uh, initially, at least, until you see both elements of it, um, uh, guided by an internal model of perhaps expectations, of recognition. Who knows? But that model determines... Um, the decision to disambiguate this figure in one way or the other. Just to explain that a little bit more, 
lots of things could be models. Uh, words can be <coughs> models as well. Um, this is a, an experiment um, which was done in the 50s, I think, with looking at a load of ambiguous figures, which are down here on the centre. Uh, subjects were asked to record these images mentally, and then they were asked to reproduce them. And just before they were asked to reproduce them, they were given a modelling word as a kind of a cue, surreptitiously. So if they were given, if we look at this one here, which is just two circles connected by a line, if they were fed the word eyeglasses, they put a little nose piece in. They're asked to re recall these accurately. They're not asked to draw mm. eyeglasses. They're asked to re remember what you saw and draw it again for me accurately. Mm. But that little hint of eyeglasses altered their, their memory. Altered, and similarly, if they fed the word dumbbell, then they thicken the line. So a little illustration of how internal or models can, can shape the way that we recall or see objects. Models can be very powerful. Models are very important. A little bit of digression here, but this is some work um, which did a couple of years ago looking at one particular very powerful of the Durant model, which is this picture here of a, of a brain cell. So this picture was drawn... Uh, in a textbook about five years after Cajal and Golgi discovered, made their original drawings, and it represents the first ever attempt to put together that information to define the archetypal brain cell. <coughs> Drawn in 1899, you can trace this all the way through to the present day. This is Grey's Anatomy. This is a children's... <coughs> Primer on science. I'm just looking at Keith. You didn't draw this, did you, Keith? No, you didn't. Um, this, is a, this is an artwork. This is the cover of a, of a magazine. Once again, Barker's original neuron appearing again and again and again. And here it is in our second year students at university. Uh, this image from 1899 still permeating complete with um, lines of sausages uh, along this particular part. It, it's just absolutely stuck in the culture of science. It's very powerful. A piece of modelling. Sometimes you encounter uh, information where there are no pre-existing models, and this is a very famous uh, example. This is the Dighton writing rock. Have anyone seen this before? Uh, this comes from uh, Envisioning Information by Edward Tufty. This is uh, inscriptions from Native Americans on a rock in Connecticut. Language has been long lost, the people which have been long lost, and this writing rock had been recorded over several decades by different artists trying to make accurate representations of what they saw. And they came up with all these different kinds of interpretations. It makes sense when you think about the dumbbell and the eyeglasses. You're trying to draw something, and maybe you've got in your mind something that you've seen before which looks similar, and you apply that internal model, and you come up with a whole series, everyone's got a slightly different take on it, it comes up with a slightly different recollection, a slightly different recording of information. And that's what Cajal and Golgi do. I don't know where their internal models come from, but somehow or other, Cajal and Golgi had different ways of seeing, not interpreting, ways of seeing what they had in front of them, which had been influenced by something beforehand, which made Golgi connect lines and Cajal see them as discrete objects. These are brain cells. 
Boy, okay, very quickly. So what do models look like now for scientists? Well, there are a whole plethora of different models, and these are the things that we draw. Talking about the importance of drawing in science, models exist in the informal sketches that we do for each other. These are slightly more formal, but these represent things that we sketch in the lab. And also in language as well. I think, uh, talk about the power of words. These are all words I use in everyday my science, fate, competition, lineage, inheritance, migration, environment, and you'll recognize them as things which have powerful meanings outside science. So these all shape the way that we, we do our science. So we carry with us these models from elsewhere. And I think this is important because this is where art can really interact with science. These are some sketches by me and a collaborator artist exploring these themes, exploring models, and this is the work that we produce. So I just incredibly productive area, and there is a reason why that is. I'll just go through the points. I never realize I'm running short of time. Important and valuable because <coughs> it's in these areas that interactions with, between artists and scientists help us define, challenge, change, alter, and shift models and paradigms. So if we talk between us about our preconceptions, the models that we um, have for our, our science, science explanation, then it's this area, shifting models, testing models, questioning our models, that this becomes a really useful, valuable interaction for researchers. And, of course, you might recognize this paradigm shift as being something that was recognized by Kuhn as one of the fundamental things that inspires big changes in science. So, it really, potentially, a very powerful place for um, interactions to take place. So, very quickly, if I may, we're still divided. So, it's puzzled me given that there's this potential that scientists and artists don't meet up. And this is something I wrote in your spiel there. There's core suspicions about the importance of this. Scientists instinctively react against talking to artists on the whole. We don't like it. We find it suspicious. We don't understand why we should be doing it. It's not just me. This is in The Guardian last week or a couple of weeks ago. An unease is about engagement. It's the same thing. Early career researchers, why do I have to become a media donor or a children's entertainer? What, what, what am I wasting my time doing this for? And I think it comes back. There's a sense of scientists have a very strong self-image of what they should be like um, and how they should behave and what, the, what they should be doing. And, and for a long time, I thought this was a cultural thing. You know, maybe culture of the lab. We've got to be in there all the whole time. I don't want to mess around with, with artists and doing peripheral things. My life is, is my science. But I wanted to see whether there was a way of thinking, just, just, just writing this talk today, if I, if I have written it, think about this talk. Systems of seeing the world, systems of seeing ourselves. Is there a link? And I'll just finish with this last slide. So I've talked about systems of seeing the world, that I think science has a very different perspective, different way of seeing. And I think the systems of seeing ourselves are what perhaps prevent us from interacting with artists more closely. I love these two quotes. This is from Santiago Ramon y Cajal. This is from Richard Avedon, the photographer. Both basically saying the same thing. <laughs> so I'll read Cajal's. It says, All description, no matter how objective and simple it may seem, constitutes personal interpretation. The point of view of the author himself. So there's no such thing as objectivity. There's, you can only have subjective experience. And this is what Richard Avedon said. I'm always photographing myself. And I thought this was a great way of saying, well, actually, science and art converge. I'm not so sure that's the case, because if you flip it round, 
I think what you could say is they're saying something very important about their identity. Santiago Camargo, Robert Bonaparte, I think is saying he's investing his identity in the way that he sees. If you put it in a different perspective, I'm not sure I quite believe myself here. Same with Richard Abaddon, that their identity comes through the way that they see. If they've invested, if it's all personal interpretation, then, and that science sees the world in a different way, then their identity, our identities, are perhaps irredeemably split along these lines, and that our identities are defined by these two different ways of seeing things. I have to say, I find it very difficult as a scientist to sometimes break out of this mode of seeing things in terms of <laughs> artifact, real and unreal. Um, over the years. But anyway, I'm going to stop there. Um, thanks very much. Uh, any questions? <laughs>